Each week on Chatter That Matters, I share a story, an inspiring story of someone that overcomes circumstances, and in doing so, they can reclaim or chase their dreams. They change their world and sometimes ours for the better. So it's usually an individual. Steve Pakin was a great example of that. Tonight's a little different. Tonight, instead of an individual overcoming circumstances, we're gonna talk about Canada. To set the tone, I need to join together and travel back to 1967. What a year it was. We had a Maple Leaf flag that was flying for two years and we said to the world, we are now our own country. Trans-Canada Highway had been opened up, this massive infrastructure project equal to connecting this country by train. At Expo 67, Montreal, every country showed up to put their best foot forward. And the country that made the best impression was Canada. Our values, our appetite for life, the way we opened our doors to immigration. And wealth, we had the third highest per capita income in the world. Our economy, 20 million people, was the ninth largest in the world. What a fantastic time. And generation after generation that followed, this baton we passed on was gold-plated. You touched it, it radiated with purpose and opportunity and pride. We were allies that stood shoulder to shoulder. But a lot has happened since 1967. And that's what we're here to talk about. Here's not, tonight's not about finger pointing. This isn't a partisan political event. It's the reality of the metrics that matter were failing. And the next generation is coming along. 2012, we polled Canadians and said, how do you think the next generation will fare? 32% said they're not gonna do as well as ours. Today, over 75% are feeling that way. Our economy slipped, our per capita income has slipped. And tonight we're gonna to talk about why this is everybody's business. Danny, Waleed, and Joe, come on up and let's have an incredible conversation. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me today is Danny Asaf. He's a top competition lawyer. Walid Hajazi, world-renowned for his thinking on international business. And Joe Manget, Entrepreneur of the Year for Startup EHN Canada. And we're talking about their book, Everybody's Business, and what we need to do to ensure Canada's prosperity going forward. How did literally this book come alive and why the three of you? Is this like the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker? Or is it just three good, three friends that were bored and wealthy? Yeah. What, what's happened? How does this come about? You know, when you have friendships, firstly, that's a blessing in life. So just if God and, and fate brings good people around you, stay close to them, good things will happen. You never know what they're going to be, including a book. The book, the very beginning, the concept was it came from the, everybody's business, my work as a competition lawyer, and always thinking about you know prosperity and how entry markets get, how you enter markets, and all of us think about our kids, and thought, okay, well, what, how can they have the dreams that we have and live up to their potential and live that uh, that life that we all want them to live, and what would it offer it? So I look at technology. I work with a lot of technology companies, and I thought, well, the tools of productivity have been democratized. So they're now in our hands. There's less intermediation. If you have an idea, you have a passion, you have some productivity, you can put it into the market. This is what will animate the future. Shifting the focus from industry back to the individual, just like this country was first built and came. There are lots of stories, but a big part of that story is agriculture. People came, they farmed the land, they got implements. It was this farmland. They never believed in saw they would build these metropolises today. They couldn't have imagined what the future was like. Today, it's like the digital farmland. It's the digital age. Put the tools back in the people's hands, trust them, you never know what that next generation will build. And the second part was really complex. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of fear. How can we do this? Has humanity done it in the past? And that's where the pillars came up. It's like, okay, from the beginning of time, how did people create wealth? What were the foundation of that? You need a person. In the 21st century, the totality of the person, healthy, educated, uh, their authentic selves, all of that stuff. They need tools. They need implements. What are the 21st century tools? You need resources. You got to put into the pot of whatever that you're creating. At the end of that line, you need to sell. Whatever you made, you need to sell it to somebody. And you also need access to capital to fund your great ideas. And then the more, and this is where we all came together, the more frictionless that game board, 
the more you'll win, the more you'll prosper. Well, Lee, was there any time? I mean, it's always, I remember forming a rock band as a kid. We spent two days coming up with a title, never, never wrote a song and never played a note. You finished the book, a big task, because very often along the way, we just give up. Was there any time in, that, in the process of writing this, you just felt we're imposters. This isn't gonna, there's nobody's gonna value it or I haven't got time. Or was it just a perfectly paved speedway in terms of putting this together? I've been a professor. I know I don't look that old, but I've been a professor at U of T for 30 years. And I've been working on these topics. You know, there are so many studies out there done on these topics. I know Jim Milway's out here somewhere. He's got a phenomenal book in this area. We called it everyone's business. That's accessible. What we wanted was a book that would allow people to read it in four hours. That's how long it'll take you. Probably took you two, but <laughs> for four hours. And I, so the, the answer is no. I never thought that anyone would think of us as imposters because these issues have been under the radar of policymakers, but they don't talk about them. Every election for the last 30 years, these issues never come up. But as you said it, Canada's prosperity continues to slide. I think it's an incredibly important book. I think the title is very important. And I think everybody should read this and this should become part of the narrative for elections, not partisan, but I never thought we were imposters. I knew it would be well received. What was interesting to me about this book is how many different types of people you got quotes from interviewed. Like you would have thought the vein you would have mined was just, you know, exceptional business leaders. But you went to unions, you went to politics, academia. What was the intent of casting that wide of a net? The whole point was, was to make this something that everybody can relate to. And if we just went to business leaders or you know, consultants or, or bankers, um, it, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be as understandable and relatable. We needed to get input from everybody in Canada to do this. What was the quote that surprised you the most? I mean, any, any one of you that you came back and said, from their lens or perspective, that's a really interesting point of view. The one quote that hit me like a ton of bricks was someone from Newfoundland who said, complacency is not an option, it's a danger. Canadians that are complacent, I mean, we want to be really optimistic. It's hard though, but you think in 1967, we were the third richest country. A lot can change in 50 years. And now we're 15th, and where are we going to be from 50 years from now for our kids? This is the wake-up call, and if we don't really get policymakers to take these issues seriously, it's hard to change the trajectory of that ship. If I was writing a review from your book, I felt like in some cases I was in the middle of a pinball game. Part of the time I was bouncing off sort of this sludge of many of the things that are wrong, the metrics. Other times I was going flying up this ramp with optimism. And I think that's really what we're talking about is really, are we gonna to continue to down this path or are we gonna move forward putting the right foot forward? But I wanna talk a little bit about a pinball game that's about to tilt because there's some really telling things in it. I'm gonna to go to you first, Willie. What you know? We talked about per capita of income. We've talked about uh, the size of our economy. What is a metric that everybody in this audience, the collective conscious of the country, should be demanding answers for? If there's one thing, what should we be measuring? First of all, I tell my MBA students, there's no other country I'd rather live in than Canada. I'll start by saying that Canada and the U.S. have the same inputs, but the U.S. has such better outputs. And the question is why? And the metric that summarizes it all has to do with R&D or technology development, which relates to commercialization. And to sum all of that up, we work with a lot of startups at the Rotman School. You talk to ventures in Canada, their goal is to sell out to a big American company. You talk to ventures in the US, their goal is global domination. That's the difference. So the metric really is around R&D and innovation and commercialization. We need more of that in Canada, and that's what the frictionless eco ecosystem's about. So Danny, is that an issue that the capital pool is in there? Because I see we're willing to write checks for billions of dollars to get a branch battery plant in Ontario. Are we not doing enough for what's is 75 or 80% of our economy, which is sort of these entrepreneurs and small business? I believe we aren't. And I and there's another quote in the book, which we said, what struck you? There was a quote, I think it's from our friend from Telus Ventures, who said, the difference between Canadian and U.S. investors, I think he said, is Canadians say, oh God, please make sure, I hope I don't lose it. Whereas Canadians think, Americans think, I can't believe that I got a chance to play this game and the hope of what I can win. So it's the fear of losing that overpowers the joy of winning. 
We have a lot of capital in this country, but somehow our metrics are a little bit different. Our ambition is less. And the idea that we can kind of believe and invest in ourselves, for whatever reason, has just that complacency has kicked in and we don't trust that we're going to be able to make that great next global company. Joe, I mean, I'm going to go back to you as wearing the entrepreneurial hat. Some of the stuff that really came out of the book, in America, you have to write a deck on why you're going to say no. Or in Canada, you have to write a deck on why you have to say yes. Why do we have this mindset? I don't think it's that we're risk averse. I've started up companies and I, it, it takes grit and determination. It's really hard, especially in this country and in this province. I think what happens is that uh, a lot of leading companies like BlackBerry, for example, got complacent. The country of Canada does not have competition. There's not a, a lot of drive for, for innovation. So kind of like BlackBerry got to a certain level, got complacent, and then, and then they got hammered as competition came in. So we've got lots of risk takers, but we, we actually don't have a, a system that enables them to, to succeed as time goes on. So is that why we're Canadian companies decide they want to go down and be bought by American because it's a, a different arena? I'm playing in the arena where competition matters, where only the best survive. Is that part of the reason that they look to that versus in Canada where we have these moats and drawbridges pulled up? You know, there's this great book talks about, you know, not Canada, not as a country of immigration, but emigration. You think about the number of Canadians in Silicon Valley that are there and they're doing phenomenal. And the question becomes, why can't they do that here? You think about Toronto, you think about Ontario 50 or 100 years ago, very different than it is today. And you ask yourself the question, immigrants come from all over the world. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of grit to leave your country and come here and create a business. So the question we ask is, okay, Canadians were risk averse 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Okay. And there's reasons for that. But the country has changed. So the question you want to ask yourself is, are people that are coming to Canada like the Canadians that were here before risk averse? Are the people coming here really want to do things, but they hit up against conservative Canadian institutions? And the evidence shows it's the latter. A lot of people that come here really want to build businesses, but they find it really difficult because of all of the protectionism. And Tony, we should talk about the number of Canadians that come to, people that come to Canada and leave in the first year. Let's talk about that because we have these narratives like the great reset, quiet quitting, but this is the great return. When I read this in your book, and I never realized that we invite these people in to the Canadian dream. But if they're leaving after a year, that dream is more of a nightmare than a dream. And the people that leave aren't like the average. Elon Musk is an example of someone who came, went to Queen's University and left. And the question that we ask in the book we talk about all the time is why didn't he set up his facility here? And the answer that, well, this to US, because it's, I don't think that's a good answer. We have the same inputs. Two things, one, when we get these immigrants a million last year, the first time in our history, some of the very best leave but secondly, because of the challenges Canada's facing, we don't want to drink the Kool-Aid. Canada is not as attractive as it was 25 years ago because we're no longer the third richest country, we're now 14th. Lots of others are going to many of the most innovative European countries, and lots of them are deciding to stay in the countries of their origin. One of the strategies mm -hmm. for attracting young minds has been our university system. Yeah. You know, this has been, Magnetic, you come in and it's almost your golden ticket. You come in, you get, you graduate. Is that having an impact on our universities because they're finding it harder now to attract the best of the best? Joe, you want to take this one? Well, I did undergrad in Canada and grad school in the U.S. Like it, it actually is really interesting. There is a there is a very stark difference uh, as you look at the the two educational systems. The the people who wrote my textbooks in Canada were my professors in the U.S. There's a difference in, in quality of, of, of academics across the two countries, I'm, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> um, but I think we cannot underestimate the strength and the power of our education system. The education system we have, the healthcare system we have, back to that first pillar. Do you have capable, educated, knowledgeable people who could be trained or have the skills to get stuff done and be productive? I think we do. So then it's a question of how do you and we deploy that in the 21st century? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. You're joining me today at the Toronto Hunt Club. 
where I'm interviewing Danny Asaf, Walid Hijazi, and Joe Mangan. And we're talking about their book, Everybody's Business, and what we need to do to ensure Canada's prosperity going forward. Let's move the conversation to the how. My mantra has always been head, heart, and hands. I get it, I feel it, and I want to do it. I'm wondering if one of the big issues that roars through your book is heart. The Canadians have become so comfortable in certainty. With it, they've lost the courage. Things are going to be fine. You just said, there's no other place I want to be. That might not last forever if we don't start deploying some of the pillars. So is that the biggest issue we're dealing with? We have educated people, but they're not as hungry they used to be because they, they get three meals a day regardless. Complacency is the biggest issue facing our country, in, in my opinion. So the statistic you gave earlier, 75% of us, so the majority of us in this room, think that our kids will have a worse future than us. So how do we feel about that? And more importantly, what are we doing about that? When you look at the data, there's other countries where we have the opposite trend, where parents think their kids are going to have a brighter future than them. I'll pick on Poland, uh, South Korea, Taiwan. Okay, you might say, okay, those are kind of third world countries. Well, each one of those countries will have a, will be richer than us in, in the next in the next 25 years. So we, we are we are standing here. We're we, we're being complacent. We're not acting on these opportunities. And as, if you look at the pillars, the pillars are not rocket science. Focused effort will actually get us there. Uh, great leadership in this country will actually get us there. Canada, Canada is just an incredible, incredible country. Uh, as you said, we've got the people, we've got the natural resources. We just need the will and the leadership to, to move. Let's take Singapore, for example. You know, 1967, arguably a swamp. It had no natural resources. It had very little prospect, 5 million people at best. Today, its economy is bigger than us. Its GDP is higher. It owns things like biology and the appetite to succeed and to build and to give the next generation a better prospect is there. Why can Singapore do it with no resources and our country with 40 million people, soon to be 40 million people, sharing a border with the greatest economy on the planet, abundance of intellectual, emotional, natural resources? What's stopping us? So the two pillars of Canadian prosperity since Confederation are access to natural resources. It's unbelievable energy superpower and border with the US, both of these sources of prosperity are coming under strain. Many people thought that Trump became protectionist and somehow when a new government came in, a democratic government, that somehow there'd be a snapback. All of the protections that Trump put in are still in place under Biden. Andre Salzenko, who's a policymaker in, in Ottawa, retired now, he said the following. He said, Canadian companies are as productive as they need to be. You go to countries like Singapore and even Japan previously, because they don't have natural resources, they have to work harder. We have natural resources. We have access to the US market. We have a massive trade surplus in raw natural resources, which means we take stuff out of the ground and we export it. And we have a massive trade deficit in processed. What does that mean? We take stuff out of the ground and we export it. And we let other people process it and bring it back. And that's why they call Canadians hewers of wood and drawers of water for a biblical term. But when you think about Singapore, they have to. So Danny, you're like one of the top lawyers when it comes to competition, trade deals. I wanna put the lens into Canada for a moment. We're putting up walls and moat when we should be opening our world to free trade, we seem to be closing. The wine that we're having tonight, you can't buy outside of Ontario because there's protectionism in place. How important is it for us to start acting as a country versus the entities of provinces and territories? You know, it's critical because, you know, as my mom taught us, we were six kids, about five figures. She said, you know, what is stronger, this or when you come together like this? And then these are the things that we need to get back to appreciating is the strength in our unity. So get to the emotion. The word for me is urgency. Why? Not just because it's a word. But because you look at statistics, the G7 was 60% of the global economy, now it's 30%. What does that mean? There's a lot of people in that race, a lot of people who are hungry, a lot of people who haven't experienced middle class. Those people hadn't, didn't have a fridge, they didn't have air conditioning. It's really attractive when you think you're on a path to get those stuff and those people are not gonna retreat. So we used to win the 100 meter in whatever, or the 100 yard dash, or whatever it's called, in 11 seconds, doesn't win anymore. So that's where that complacency comes in as a competition lawyer. What do we say? Monopolies get fat, lazy, and complacent. 
and it's a natural thing. It's nothing to beat ourselves over, beat up our, ourselves up about. It's about recognizing it and knowing we're in a new game and a new era. We're 150 years yeah. old, and we're talking about the decline of the Canadian Empire. Yeah. I mean, this is. I mean, when you're, talk, when you're, when you're talking about civilization societies, yeah. they're hundreds of years before they start facing right. complacency. I want to now talk about your pillars. We're going to shift from tilting the bill game. Now I'm spinning around and bouncing saying there's opportunity. First one, Willie, I'm going to talk to you about is, is the sense of people. Everybody's struggling with people. Like, how do I get them, inspire them, motivate them? AI's coming. I mean, this it's, it's a tough place for young people to be. But what would you say we need to do in terms of policy to take advantage of this highly educated and diverse population of Canada? I think there's three buckets I, I, I would address, but when you think about all of this new technology, AI and machine learning, we have to make sure our youth, but our labor force more generally, is not afraid of it, but is prepared to leverage it. And that requires lots of training within schools. And we did a whole bunch of focus groups with teachers. I think people would be shocked to hear the number one obstacle to bringing in these new digital and coding skills into primary and secondary schools, we thought the obstacle would be financial. It's not. The number one obstacle is resistance to change on the part of the teachers. That's the first big thing is we need to make sure our educational system reflects the skills that we need. The second big one has to do with credentialing. The idea that so many people come to Canada and they have a skill when people are not allowed to pursue their passion and their skill, everybody is made worse off. One example is medical doctors. This idea that we have a shortage of medical doctors, yet there's thousands of doctors within Canada, and let's not fool ourselves. These people are not allowed to practice, not because they're not qualified. A lot of double negatives in there. <laughs> but they are not allowed to practice because of protectionism, and it goes across the spectrum. And then the third big one, Canada's a great country. There's no other country I'd rather live in, but we have to look at the global trends. And you asked this great question. We're not attracting the same people that we attracted 25 years ago. And 25 years from now, that pool is going to continue to slide. As you're negotiating some of these international trade deals, do you feel like you're playing with a, a pair of twos or four aces? No, so I always feel Canadians are playing with four aces, but it's just sometimes that we fall asleep at the table, I don't know, <laughs> or we drop the card. It's really like, look at AI. We invented AI, as far as I can tell. Who's gonna commercialize it? That's the thing, the irony is we sit there, we figure out the most complex problems and then we're like, we give up. I don't know, is it unseemly to prosper from it? What is it that we feel? I also feel there's a complacency too. I don't like to beat up on us ourselves too much because we did grow up. The country in its modern history, its patron was the United Kingdom, the global, the world's largest economy. We spoke the same language. We had same values, everything easy to trade with them. Then America picked up the baton and they're our neighbor. So I think our benchmarks of how you win have always been a little bit skewed because it seemed easier. So for example, people here, I go around the world, you talk about that. People will say, oh, well, they visited wherever, Dubai, six times. Look at it, didn't come back with a deal. Well, why do you think you're gonna get a deal with six trips to Dubai? It's gonna take six years. Yes, the reason you're talking to these people is you're qualified, you have a great brand behind you, but they don't know who you are. But when we go to New York, of course, we're starting on third base. We know them, they know us, we eat the same food, we have chicken wings, we argue about which team, which hockey team or football team. We're starting already, the wind is in our sails. And that benchmarking is difficult when you come home and then people, even in their offices, are like, they're wasting time and wasting resources, it's never going to happen. It's a bigger world, it's a tougher game, it's moving faster, we sure are up to winning it, but this is how we gotta play. I would say that the people that are playing at your level, Joe, that are creating businesses and stuff, feel very bullish about their ability, innovative, but you know, what we talk about is many of them leave to the States to find capital or elsewhere. But you just said, Willie, is, is status quo. It's not the people that are surrounding and orbiting and wanting to make Canada this exciting place, it's the people that are trying to preserve what they have. They don't want to change things because it involves their job, their livelihood, the way they've always done things. You think of the telecom sector, why we pay the highest rates in the developed world, why? Like for what reason? It's all of this protectionism, but it's not just the impact on us as consumers. You look at the protection in the telecom industry and the study we did for the prime minister's office, it shows what the impact is on business. So to your point, Tony, 
it takes bold leadership. It takes a leader or a group of leaders that come in and really will have to shake up the status quo. The world is full of companies and countries that waited too long to implement change. The longer you wait, the more difficult it becomes and the less likely it is you're gonna be su successful. You have a great piece in your book talking about wind. The perception was when you're talking to Egyptians and saying, is this a really a place open to foreign investment? Share that with the audience so they get a sense of how protectionism is just isn't hurting us financially, but it's hurting our ability to attract the kind of capital. I can need. tell you it was a shock because there was a there was an initial investment, then there was a rejection, which was a little bit weird. And it gets into national security and all kinds of stuff. It's a big black box. So there is this dynamic at play, protectionism and all of these things. But again, I, for me, I don't want to sit there and find an excuse for us, okay? The world, everybody has got issues. There's protectionism everywhere. Maybe it's not the same degree. How do we do it? To leadership. So leadership, I'm with you on leadership. And I'm with Willie, my co-author, my friend, my brother. But also, somebody once told me about political leadership. They said, I said, well, we want the leaders. I said, I want the leaders to lead. He goes, what makes you think they lead? I go, well, isn't that what they do? He goes, the number one job of a politician is find a parade and get to the front of it. So they are waiting for us to create the parade, the power of ideas. Forget about it. Look at humanity, okay? Rock, 10,000 years ago, what was the primary purpose? Beat another human being with it. Same rock. You know what they do with it today? They mine stuff in that rock to send spaceships to Mars. What's the difference between the two situations? The idea the power of us to innovate and to take something that was used to kill one another, something that is gonna take us to new places, galaxies on the planet Earth. The power of idea can change a society, can change anything, and if we believe in ourselves, then everything we've got, as imperfect as it is, it's a pretty darn good place to start from. We return, we talk about technology and the opportunities that presents to unleash the entrepreneurial spirit in Canada. Hi, it's Tony Chapman. Investing in Canada, well, that matters to RBC. $500 billion in sustainable financing to combat climate change. $500 million for Future Launch, a 10-year program to prepare youth for the jobs of tomorrow. Helping to discover the next generation of Olympians. Artists monetizing their talents, women entrepreneurs pursuing their dreams, supporting mental health, and so much more. Investing in Canada. Well, that matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I call my guests the butcher baker and the candlestick maker for how they've collaborated, brought together unique strengths to create pillars that Canada can build its future economy on. Danny Asaf, he's a top competition lawyer. Walid Hajazi, world-renowned for his thinking on international business. And Joe Manget, Entrepreneur of the Year for Startup EHN Canada. You talk about tools in terms of supporting. You know, we no longer need to be hewers of wood. We don't only need big shipping lanes. A lot of the world's operating in the clouds. What kind of tools do we need to support Canadians with so we can unleash this productivity? Physical and, and digital, right? So anybody who drove here tonight knows we have a physical infrastructure <laughs> issue. Um, and it's and it's real, but it's it's solvable. Digital, like high speed internet access across the country, that that should should be doable. The question we keep we keep getting asked is, well, we need money to pay for that. Well, if if you look at how our government is spending money, like our our government spending has increased by 150 billion dollars a year, forever is being spent, mostly on an extra 60,000 civil servants. Imagine if we spent that 150 billion on infrastructure. Every Canadian would have very low cost access to high-speed internet. Imagine what that could do to, boot, to boost our economy ahead. We, we, we could actually build new, new highways and afford them. We could build infrastructure to the Ring of Fire. We could mine the Ring of Fire. We could build, we're complaining about these battery plants at $14 billion. We could build 10 every year, forever, if we choose to spend the money wisely. So it's not a question of Canada, Canada has plenty of money, but we're choosing to spend our, as Roger Martin says, we're, we're choosing to spend our prosperity, our current prosperity. We're spending it on things that dissipate in value over, over time, like, like more, more government employees. But if we don't get the return on that investment, 
if we're just spending the money and we don't get a return on the investment, that debt's going to come back and hurt. Absolutely. And, and, and that's what's driving our, our long-term decline. But it's not rocket science in terms of what tools we need to be a world-class competitor. You teach that subject. You see it every day. You're building a world-class competitor. You're doing most of your business outside of Canada because of the bureaucracy inside of Canada. What are the two or three things that we could get everybody excited about saying, this is where we want those billions spent? The tool that we need is R&D and innovation. You talked about an IT infrastructure, uh, high-speed broadband for everyone. Not only does that include, improve productivity and prosperity, it improves inclusivity as well because most of the communities that don't have access to high-speed internet are indigenous and marginalized communities. So that's the other thing. But what it all comes down to, what we really need in this country is a lot more innovation, and that metric is R&D. And if you look at the picture, it's pretty scary. Since 2000, Canada's R&D, so innovation, relative to the size of the economy, has been falling, whereas all of our trading partners has been going up. The question is why? Are Canadians not as innovative as Americans? I don't think so. I think that the reason is that when Canadians try to do those innovative things, they come up against all of these barriers. They can't get access to credit. They can't get a customer, so I develop a new technology. I can't get someone to adopt it because of government bureaucracy. The World Economic Forum, the number one criticism of doing business in Canada from a survey of global CEOs is dealing with an inefficient bureaucracy. My student, born in Winnipeg, never went to high school. He went from grade eight to university and then finished his doctorate. He has a remote healthcare monitoring company. It's called Biotricity. He went to Silicon Valley. Why did he leave Canada? He tried to commercialize it here and he couldn't. And I find it pretty disappointing that his technology is now deployed across the US in 30 countries around the world, but where is it not deployed? In Canada. And he has saved hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lives. He has this algorithm that can predict if you're gonna have um, some kind of a, a heart attack or a stroke, and he immediately notifies the patient, the doctor, the HMO, the hospital, the entire ecosystem, and he gets you to the hospital. He saves hundreds of thousands of lives. And why isn't it deployed in Canada? It's the incentive structure within the healthcare system, which is pretty sad. But Joe, we were talking before, and you know, and I, you just opened my mind because you know the narrative and the rhetoric with politics is, oh my God, private healthcare, it's gonna sink our country. But you're saying the majority of our healthcare is already private. Absolutely, so I, I'm the CEO of a private healthcare company, evil private healthcare company, as I'm often called. I also chair the Health, health Sector Audit Committee for the province of Ontario. So we look at the 120 odd billion dollars of, of spend. So I, I, can see, I can see both. So people say private healthcare is bad. Have anybody been to a life labs? That's private healthcare. Anybody been to a family doctor? That's private healthcare. Family doctors are private corporations. Anybody go to Shoppers Drug Mart for a COVID shot? Okay, that, that's private healthcare. Is private healthcare evil? I, I think the only thing that matters is who pays. I don't believe Canadians should pay for healthcare. I think governments, employers should, should pay for healthcare. The vast majority of your healthcare is delivered privately, but the issue is, it's, is who pays. So publicly funded, privately delivered, is, and that's actually the future of, of our healthcare system. It, it's like getting a COVID shot at Shoppers Drug Mart versus anybody go to the COVID clinics that we had. I literally had a doctor give me a COVID shot. Okay, like just think about the cost to our healthcare system. A doctor getting paid $300 or $250 to give me a COVID shot where a pharmacist can do it for 20. Like how does that make any sense in this healthcare system? And that's the essence of our issue. We don't, we have plenty of money in healthcare. We just need to spend it better. One of the things I was fascinated about, I did a keynote at Canada 3.0 and I talked about why can't Canada be the petri dish for the world? Anybody has a big idea they could come to Canada, they would get you fast, like first mover advantage without first mover risk. You'd have the top competition lawyers, IP experts, you'd have the uh, uh, supercomputers that can model markets. Why don't we go after that moonshot, which is says we might not be the biggest, but we certainly can be the fastest and the best. It's about empowering individuals and empowering people to be that Petri dish. It's exactly that idea. And it includes the people who are here and bringing more people who will bring those fresh ideas. So I teach competition law and you talk about innovation and how it happens and so on. And it's fascinating. I always give a little example. I've probably given it in one of the classes you've invited me to, which is look at what how innovation occurs. So if you think you don't need immigration or the past is prologue, think about 
the great families historically in North America, whether the Vanderbilt, great families, Rockefellers, Vanderbilts, you can go on and on, the Eatons, some great, great Canadian families. And then you look at the innovations and the, and the breakthroughs of today, Zuckerberg, Jobs, Musk, these are unfamiliar names. You need that fresh blood because, because you won in the past doesn't mean you're gonna win in the future but you need that Petri dish, that game board that we talk about, that frictionless game board for people to come want to play that game in your country and to make the most of their potential. I'd say the average Canadian right now is feeling insecure and uncertain. They're feeling like they're standing on shifting sand. One of the key cornerstones of your book is access. You talk about access to markets, access to capital. It's, what, it's really two, chapter, two of the two pillars that really wove together. But isn't it important that we give Canadians access to a bigger dream? We just had a nice conversation at the table about interviews of youth and the perception. So Joe talked about parents and their kids, but if you talk to youth increasingly, and I, I, I don't wanna imply this is necessarily bad, but forgive me, but this tendency to be more socialist. And if we have a capitalist system, which is the best system in the world, if people are not included in the, in the prosperity in sharing in the pie, they opt out. When you look at the establishment, the wealthy families and all of that, it's not in their long-term interest to have large parts of society. And historically, when you look across Europe and revolutions, these are exactly the conditions that give rise to revolutions. I don't think there'll ever be a revolution in Canada. I just think what we'll see is that people will begin voting for policies that are more socialist in their tendencies which really undermines the capitalist. So how do we change that? Yes. So firstly, we're not into class warfare here. Nobody, the great families didn't steal their money. They worked, they played the game, they, they lived the Canadian dream. So we don't need to disparage anybody who played that and lived the Canadian dream as successful. Absolutely not. But the issue is, what is motivating that? You know, I've reflected on that and I've tried to talk to my kids and other kids. The sense of this idea, what you called socialist, is because I think a little part of it is they've given up, okay? So when you think I'm not going to be able to have the things of my parents, no one wants to be a failure. You redefine your goals. So I believe a part of what you're hearing when you say, kids don't want a house, kids don't want this, a little bit of that is self-preservation. I don't, I'm not a psychologist, not, they, how different can they be than previous generations? It's gotta be within a band. So what is it? They have to believe. Take that un, uh, un, out of uncertainty. Take that in out of insecurity and let them say, see, your, this path is gonna give you more than that path, just redistributing the game board. You're gonna create a whole new game. But that narrative has to resonate in elementary school, it has to resonate in high school, it has to have parents they're coming home and they don't, their eyes aren't shining mm -hmm. anymore, or their heart's not beating anymore. We have to find a way to get people excited. In 1967, things weren't much different than other, I believe, attitude. Mm -hmm. You're a big sports fan. The difference between mindset and heart is the tiebreaker. I mean, getting in the NHL, there's 10% of the people in the NHL get there in talent. The other people that get in the NHL because they work harder, they have more grit. I think we're lacking that. And I, when I look at your book and you're talking about these pillars, I think this audience can easily digest it. I really do. I think under accessing consumer markets, opening up the market, trading, coming alive. I think we need narrative. We have to take this and also have storytelling. We're great storytellers. You talk about dominating Silicon Valley. Canada dominates Hollywood. We're about the, we're one of the best content creators in the world, yet we have a public broadcaster that costs us money versus makes us money. Why is that? These guys should be producing like BBC, the Downton Abbeys of the world in Canada. So how do we create narrative around this book, the red ribbon that a politician, Obama was hope, mm -hmm. Kennedy was the moonshot. You know, these people that come out of nowhere, you know, Winston Churchill, I will write the history. Where do we create something with such a powerful soundbite that the young people go, I'm buying in. I'm gonna reach for that rung and ladder. I, God damn it, I want a house. The one thing that's pretty disturbing, high schools, they wanna play sports, but they don't wanna keep score because they don't want it to be too competitive, because they don't want some of the kids to be upset. It's really disappointing. But I think another really big part of this is Americans fly the flag, we're the best in the world. We're not like that. And I really think that what Canadians need a lot more of, like Joe, I mean, Joe is humble, but despite all of the challenges within the Canadian economy, Joe was one of Canada's most successful entrepreneurs. 
he has the tenacity um, and the resilience to build a great business, and he did it. We need to celebrate these people in grade schools. Kids in school need to understand that you can have this and you have to work really hard. So there's a big conference today in downtown Toronto for the Creative Destruction Lab at Rotman. There's a 1,200 people. And the discussion there is all around AI and machine learning, and it's coming. And you should see the conversations we're having. Historically, I don't know if you know the book by Piketty, where you, it's the whole book around the returns to capital and returns to labor. This is gonna magnify that massively. So everything you're talking about, Tony, is only gonna accelerate unless we address the issues that you're raising. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. This week on Chatter That Matters, three of the smartest people I know, Danny Asaf, Walid Hijazi, and Joe Manget. They join me to talk about their book, Everybody's Business, and what we all need to do to ensure Canada's prosperity going forward. Their plan is nonpartisan, but so very powerful. So we're talking about education. Is there a narrative we can be giving to parents so that we can have conversations? One of the things I found fascinating about parenting is when I grew up, my dad could beat me in any sport until I was probably 12, 14. Today, a kid gets on a video game and they immediately the parent loses their currency because the appetite for excitement, the algorithms, it's cognitive learning, learning through failure. I'm getting my validation. And we've lost that in the school system. What can we do to renew the conversation between parents and children to say, don't ever lose sight of that rung on the ladder? Because when you pull yourself up, there's not a better place to be because you know there's a rung after it. But it's that first rung that I think that we're seeing 25-year-old, 35-year-old kids living in the basement of their houses. That's not right. A lot of parents complain by kids at school for eight hours, and then they have to come home and I have to do homework with them. And sometimes the parents can't do the math because it's too difficult and all that. But what is the reason we have homework? It's because you want the parents involved and the parents need to help shape the kids. They're cutting back on homework. So what ends up happening is there's massive barrier between what's going on in the schools and what's going on at home. Who's driving the vision and the dreams of these kids? It's not being pushed by the parents, it's being pushed by teachers and schools. And it isn't necessarily motivating them to want to do the very, very best. Look, you look at kids that go to some of the best schools in Canada and those that go to not, there's a massive divide. And a lot of that is driven by lots of factors, but one of the factors is the narrative the motivation and the dreams that they're exposed to, and they're massively different. We need to give this current generation role models. We need to tell them the stories, like like the, the Zuckerberg, Musk, like, okay, who are the Canadian equivalents? We need to show this generation that, yeah, it's actually possible. It takes grit, it takes determination, but you can, you can get there. Uh, maybe it's not about creating wealth, maybe it's about changing the world, but but you can have a, you can actually have a higher purpose and we can accelerate the, this country forward. Being complacent does not have to be an option. But today, most most Canadian youth think, oh, that's kind of the only option I have. But but if we can get out there with, with the right stories, and, and some of the stories are, are, are actually in the book, I think we can actually start that motion uh, happening. I love your story about Estonia. Why don't you, why don't you guys share this country that finally unshackled from the Soviet empire and what's happened, because I think there's some great parallels for what we might want to do as a country going forward. Estonia, a country covered in forest. They free themselves from the Soviet Union, and most of you probably don't even realize this, but that's where Skype was invented. It is the most digital country in the world. You can do absolutely everything online, or everything. It is true it's a smaller country, but they redefined their DNA. They went from a communist country that did logging to one of the most innovative and dynamic and digital countries in the world. It is really, really impressive. So what was the spark that got Estonia going? Because Canada needs that spark. So we have the story about the Lithuania, the beret shoes. I was fascinated. My brother and his wife bought these slippers. They're really odd looking. Where'd you get them from? We buy them from this woman in Lithuania. Literally, I went to her website. She said, I grew up in communist society. Everything was gray when I was a child. I would draw princess, a little princess with colors. And I would dream of a world where there were colors and so on. So that when they were when they, they broke through communism, she lived on a farm. They had wool. She took the wool. She made these colorful, beautiful slippers. 
just like in her pictures. To see that life, that gray life, it motivates you when you're free back to the power of an idea. Lithuania is an, ex Estonia is an example of that. Secondly, when I look at the future, I look, look at this room. How hungry are all of we for this conversation? We're looking, that is in us. It's already there. We can tell these stories. We can create that energy and we can refine the Can re redefine and reimagine the Canadian green dream for the so, 21st Daddy, century. So Daddy, I mean, your optimism is contagious and I'm just gonna counter it only in the sense that I spend a lot of time talking to the listeners of Chatter That Matters. Yeah. And sometimes they feel like a whack-a-mole. When they stand up and talk like you do, mm -hmm. they get hammered back. You're out of place, you're, you're protesting, you're going against the status quo. And so they just become very quiet. How do you get this conversation moving so it's not, oh, those are the liberals or those are the conservatives or those are the NDP, and more about this is the kind of country, I think when you guys talk about in the opening paragraphs, is this what we want to leave the next generation? I think it comes down to the baton we're willing to pass on and how hard we're, we're, we're willing to put that goal back on and have it radiate with opportunity. Where do we take this? What is your desired outcome? I mean, we've, we've got books in front of people. We've got conversations like this happening. What do you see happening? I'll go with each one of you on this question. Let's, Joe, we'll start with you. Five years from now. The reason I'm in this book is for my kids. Simple. So five years from now, I'd like to be sitting with, sitting with my kids, engaging with them on, on the future. I'd like them to tell me, I read your book, which they, which they both did. They were shocked, actually, about the, the state of the, the country. And I'd like them to say, we did something about this. We, a lot of our peers, 26, 27-year-olds, 20, we actually made an election issue out of this. We used social media. Our voice was heard. We elected leaders in, in this country who would actually forge a, a proper plan for this country. So I, I'd, I'd like, and we can do that in five years. If we, if we have a government that actually says, we have a 20-year plan for the country, vote for us, and here, here's the first step of the plan, and we'll, ma we'll maintain a lot of the social safety net that, that we have, but we have to invest for the future and get the youth of this country engaged in, the, in that dialogue. That's a tremendous outcome for me. We titled the book, Everybody's Business, and in five years, I would love it if any party running for, for, for federal or provincial, there's no hope of them getting elected if they're not talking about these issues. That's sort of the one thing that I, I, I really, really hope. But because I'm an, an economist and a numbers guy, and I believe the most important source of prosperity in Canada is innovation, I would love to see the trend in innovation begin to reverse. Canada is using purchasing power parity we're 30% less prosperous than the U.S. If we could close that prosperity gap, the government could cut our taxes by 30% and we could still get the same tax revenue. The focus be on implementing policies that would turn around the ability of the average Canadian pursuing their dream. Any youth who wants to build a business, we should enable it. We shouldn't squash it. This is really about nation building. It's about a new version of that. And then when we think of what really we want out of this book is it comes down at its core, it has to be human and it has to connect with our hearts and our minds. This is where left, right, center, doesn't matter, black, white, brown, whatever religion you are, every human being wants to provide for the ones they love. Every human being wants a purposeful life. What does defines a purpose? Again, whatever political spectrum you're on, Nobody likes to do something without two things in return. Recognition, reward. You can define that differently, but nobody goes into the world to do something who isn't looking for that. What do those animate ultimately? The Canadian promise. This is a place where if you do those things, your life is going to get, you're gonna, you're gonna live, you're gonna be in a place where your dreams could come true. You know, I always wrap up chatter that matters with my key takeaways. And the first I would say is that status quo is a moat that's growing bigger every day. And the middle ground's disappearing and everybody's trying to preserve what they have. I think the more uncertain we feel, the more insecure, the more we try to hold on. The second thing is there's people like you three everywhere in Canada, there's people in this room and we're being too quiet. We're not speaking up. We're not defending our principles. We're not getting angry when we think our educational system, when they take away measuring whether you win or lose, we're not voicing this, even though in, inside us we know it's wrong. We're not spending enough time 
exercising our rights that our forebears fought for. And the final thing, Danny, is just what you close with. This really is a nation-building exercise. Canada in 1967 was a nation. We had our differences. We always had the Anglophones and the Francophones. Montreal was the power base then. Toronto was Hogtown. But we were a country. The only time I feel glimpses of that is when Sidney Crosby scores a winning goal. <laughs> but, you know, it's when Canada t comes together in sort of the sporting. Nick Taylor sinking a 92-foot oh. putt. And we feel so... So how do we... So I'll end my thought is how do we create those eagle putts time and time again so that we're celebrating the wins. Thank you. Great job. Great job. I love Canada. And I consider myself among the luckiest in the world to be Canadian. I want to digress for a minute and just say that I'm also fortunate to be able to do Chatter That Matters. I owe it to RBC as they let me share these stories about possibility. And they never ask for anything in return. I'm honored when I can share what RBC is doing to help Canadians thrive and communities prosper. And I mean this with the utmost sincerity. In my entire career, I've never met an organization quite like RBC in terms of their willingness to invest intellectual, emotional, and financial capital to improve lives, livelihoods, our community, and Canada. They're so much more than a bank. And they're doing it, and people like Danny and Joe and Willit are doing it because this is a special country. We're made up of indigenous people and the immigrants who gave up everything to come to Canada to create a better opportunity for their children and for generations to come. And they made sacrifices, but they also made the right decision. For most of our history, future generations have had more opportunity and more prosperity. And as a country, we came together and were admired for our values, our moral compass, and our economy. Can you imagine in 1967, Canada had the third highest per capita income in the world and the ninth largest economy. But I am concerned that this was then, and today is a very different story. We need to come together. We need to bridge the political and geographic divides that are pulling us apart and reclaim the middle ground where consensus and collaboration led to the kind of action that made Canada one of the most admired countries in the world. And we need to stand shoulder to shoulder with our allies and all who cherish democracy and the freedoms we've been given. And we need to pay attention to books like Everybody's Business and to people like Danny Asaf, Walid Hijazi, and Joe Menget. Danny, what I admire the most about you is your passion. We need to bottle it and share it with every Canadian. They need to sign up with enthusiasm for the economic and cultural renaissance you talk about in your book. We can't bore our way forward. We must earn our way there. And Waleed, I especially appreciate you sharing your thoughts about the way we're teaching and inspiring young children. This world is changing so quickly, and the way we teach must change as well. And Joe, your insights on why we must keep the thinkers and innovators entrepreneurs in Canada, I hope this will always become the rule and never the exception. So here's to Canada and activists like Danny, Waleed, and Joe, who lead with and by example, and with positivity about our possibility. Let's all work together to stand on guard for thee and to keep this incredible country strong and free. Let's make Canada everybody's business. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.